Good afternoon. It is a delight to be here. If you would, turn to Mark chapter 12. We will read 13 through 27 as we progress through. I would entitle this sermon, Death and Taxes Answered by Jesus. So death and taxes, that sounds kind of dark. But answered by Jesus brings light to darkness. And so my overall goal this afternoon is that you would see how Jesus is tested and yet proves himself to be more worthy of our trust and our affection. And so if I wander off into some bypath, remember the goal is to see how Christ was tested and yet he's more worthy. If we walked in today with this level of trust, let's walk out of here with this level of trust. If our affection as it wanes and ebbs, if it's here now, let's leave with our affections raised because Christ is worthy of such. A note on context in my introduction. In the eyes of temple leadership, Pharisees, scribes, Sadducees, Herodians, Jesus is out of control. Jesus is making an impact on temple life. Jesus is bringing challenges to them, and they want to do away with Jesus. He came in with a triumphal entry, people proclaiming his goodness. Lazarus was raised from the dead by Christ. Their advice to him is, Jesus, hush your disciples. And he said if they did not proclaim it, the very stones would cry out. And then Jesus observes the fig tree that very pattern of having the advertisement of fruit with its green leaves, but no fruit present. And that was a picture of the institutionalized religion of the temple in their day. Jesus cleansed the temple. Oof, this hits the Sadducees right in the pocketbook. They want to do away with him. We also see the parable of the tenants who took the vineyard over for themselves and would not bear fruit to the owner of that vineyard. And they perceived that this was against them. And they perceived correctly. By way of summary of what is to come, I will look at the taxes, we will look at the death. These are both come in the form of questions. The questions, they're similar. These two episodes of of questioning Jesus about taxes and questioning Jesus about death and resurrection, they follow a similar pattern to each other. The questions have an ill intent. They are ill-conceived. They are rooted in wickedness. We may well say of them, as Joseph said of his brothers, what they meant for evil, God has meant for good. We'll see that the questions themselves, secondly, are dishonest. They're somehow convoluted. They're somehow leading in a direction, not for the sake of finding truth, but for validating my own perception. We'll see that Jesus questions the questioners. He knows their heart. He knows what they're up to. This is where we begin to say, oh, and their arguments are well designed. I I give them credit for designing these arguments. But Christ knows where it's coming from. He knows where they are going. He knows the intent. And he confronts them. And we also see in each case how Jesus answers with divine instruction. And I'll tell you, this is what opens up my heart. He answers with more 
breadth and depth and divine instruction than the question itself even contains. When you think of Christ as your prophet, priest, and king, remember, he is our great teacher, and he gives such full answers. Let your trust just take root in that. Let your affection for Christ be raised because he who stands to intercede for you, he who stands as your surety in heaven itself, has this kind of wisdom and divine knowledge that he pours forth. What a glorious Lord that we serve. Let's pray, let's read, and we will get into the details. Heavenly Father, we bless you and thank you. As we sang this morning, we ask that you would assist all of us to proclaim the glories of your name. They are here on the written page before us. They have come from Christ himself. And so we would ask for the measure of your Holy Spirit to be upon us to give us insight, to move our hearts, to have this word get inside us that we may revel in it and glory Christ because of it. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let us read Mark 12 and verse 13 through 17. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. They came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true, and you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius, and let me look at it. And they brought him one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. And so here, verses 13 through 17 The subject is taxes. Do we pay Caesar all the wickedness of his kingdom, all the wickedness of his administration, his persecution and subjugation of the temple? And so they asked this question. Let's take a look first at the questioners. Point one under taxes. They were Pharisees. Ryle calls them superstitious formalists. And a very interesting mix with the Herodians. The Herodians were worldly and pleasure-seeking. So you have a formalist, and you have the world pleasure-seekers. The ones looking good by having a checklist. And the ones running after the world saying, look at all these great things we can do in the world. In fact, I half wonder if the Herodians were kind of smiling when Christ gave challenges to the temple. Maybe that'll teach those Pharisees to be a little less rigorous, and we can have more freedom to enjoy our pleasure-seeking. Very different opinions. If you look at the religious spectrum, you take two ends of the spectrum, and they are coming together, and they are united. They are united against Christ. Because Christ spoke both against formalism, and he spoke against worldliness. And so they were joined to, though they couldn't live with each other, they could live unified against Christ. 
And we find the same, don't we, with Pilate and Herod. After Herod beats Christ, gives him over to his soldiers, and it says that day, Pilate and Herod became good friends. Not because they had something that naturally brought them together. There was no good in that relationship, but in their united wickedness against Christ. And so we see it here. Those are the questioners who have ginned up this question to trap the Lord Jesus, which is our second point here under taxes, the intent. The intent, they start out with the end in mind. The intent is to trap Jesus in his words. Let's remove Jesus. Jesus is a problem. Let's dishonor Jesus. We will give him a question. And if he answers one way, we will accuse him to the high priest that he agrees with the subjugation of the temple life in Israel to a secular, horrible Roman government. And if he answers the other way, we'll take him to that government and we will accuse him before Caesar as an insurrectionist, one who says we should not pay taxes. And so this intent is to trap Jesus. Either way, we can dishonor him. There's a subtlety in the question. They have geared it carefully. Luke even says they send the young. They have that air, and that freshness about him. It won't be the old Pharisees. It'll be the young ones. They'll go and ask this question under the guise of seeking truth. But they are not seeking truth. They are seeking to trap the Lord Jesus. And so they have designed it. And I think it took both ends of the spectrum, Pharisees and Herodians, to get this kind of question together so that they could trap him on either side. Thirdly, let's look at the question. Let's disarm Jesus with flattery. Now, does that sound like a good strategy? Would that work today? It would work in many cases today. It will not work for them. It uses subtlety. They are seeking to force an accusation with a feigned smile. Behind a smiling countenance, they hold their trap for Jesus in their hearts. Ryle says this, that we should appreciate the difficulty of the very situation of church government and political governments that have to coexist. He says we have to consider what are the dues of Caesar and what are the dues of God. Where the rights of the church end and where the rights of the state begin. What are lawful civil claims and what are lawful spiritual claims? All these are hard knots and deep problems which Christians have often found it difficult to untie and almost impossible to solve. So at the very least, we can appreciate the difficulty, and has not history borne this out, that this has been a very difficult area to overcome. But this is their question. It is filled with flattery. It is meant to disarm Jesus. It is meant to be, they're feigning a sincere question after truth. But it's merely just a baited hook to catch Jesus in his words. How does Jesus answer? Our fourth point under the taxes. Technically, you could say Jesus said, yes, you pay taxes. But if you walked away with that small binary answer of yes, you would walk away wrong you would walk away with problems. You would not be helped. In fact, you would be heading for trouble if that's all. So yes, technically he answers, you do pay. 
but a bigger perspective is required to get this right. A marvelous wisdom that is beyond us and beyond everyone in the temple was given. First in Jesus' answer, he confronts them for their hypocrisy and for their test. Do you see a graciousness here in Christ? They've devised all against him. They have sought to trap him. He still gives them an answer, an answer which they will ultimately put aside. But you know what? The answers that the world rejects, the believer cherishes and clings to. I I can tell you, after a week of being in this scripture, I cherish the answer of Christ to them. I hold it in high esteem. But he confronts them, their hypocrisy. He says, verse 6, bring me a denarius. You know what he proved just by them handing him a denarius? They're saying, should we be part of Caesar's system? Should we use his money and give it back to him? Well, show me a denarius. So he breaches into their, his own pocket, pulls out the denarius he's using because he's already a part of the system of Caesar. He's already a part of the government. There's hypocrisy. Even before they say a word, their hypocrisy is exposed. If I ask you for a piece of bread and you're still chewing, go. And you ask me the question, is it right to eat bread? Well, just the fact that you're using it, you're eating it yourself, shows that your question is feigned. And so they already are using the government system. They're already enjoying the stability the government has provided. They're already enjoying and they're collecting and gaining the riches of what the government has done in backing that denarius. There's another reason for bringing a denarius. The Greek word is derived from the Latin word, which we get our word census. And they would take a census, and they would also call this a poll tax. If you were male over a certain age, you paid tax. You paid it with, you guessed it, a denarius. All these men had paid a denarius this far already. And so at the practical level, their question is self-defeating. Bring me a denarius. There's another reason. Whose likeness and inscription is on it? Who made it? Who circulates it? Who controls it? Why, it's Caesar himself. Caesar is stamped all over this. In verse 17, Jesus gives a different word forgiving than they give in their question. They say, shall we give, and some of your translations will say pay, shall we give to Caesar? And they use a certain word for that. Jesus uses a word, sometimes it's called pay, but really it has the sense of render, of giving the due. So here you already begin to see the contours of Jesus' answer. A bare yes wouldn't do it. But to say you pay what is due, you give back for what they have given you, there should be a reasonableness in what they're asking. In fact, wasn't John the Baptist, when the soldiers wanted to be baptized, they said, what shall we do? And he said, do not charge more than you are authorized when you collect taxes. And here Jesus is echoing that very same sense. There should be a reasonable sense of what is due, and that due should be rendered back to them. And he uses a different word for it, showing that the word Christ is using is more thoughtful. It's more, he's entering into an aspect of wisdom 
decision-making here as he sees these elements. Render to Caesar, his image is on the coin. The coin was made by him, the coin is for him. There's part of this that's wonderful that's not said, but it's an extension of this very idea. His image is on the coin, render to Caesar what is Caesar's. Where is God's image found? On us. Every person bears the image of God. And therefore, the very same people that bear his image should render unto God what is God's. And here the tables begin to turn away from just what is Caesar's, but now we render unto God those things that are God's. Render to God. Here Christ even now sets up a contrast. One of the most horrible things about Caesar is that he counted himself a divine administrator. And when Jesus says, give to Caesar the things that are Caesar and to God the things that are God's, he's building up the contrast of true God and just assumed divinity. And so he begins to separate these things. You give to God what is God's, which means you don't give to God an aspect of divinity. You would never give that to Caesar. Render to God. We see that he calls them to realign themselves not only to Caesar, but to realign themselves to the true God, which is exactly what the temple needed. It's exactly what he was doing when he cleansed the temple. It's exactly what he exposed with the fig tree and the tenants, that they needed to be realigned with God himself. And so what do we take from this wonderful expansion? Not just a bare yes, but contours and God's place and the right place of government and the things that we are using It tells us in Jesus' response that it is possible to have a legitimate rendering to the government. It tells us there can be, it is possible to have harmony between these two spheres of authority. And we should seek that harmony first. But just saying that much would be too simplistic, wouldn't it? In the day and age in which we live, to simply say we can have harmony, because often that's not what we experience, and often that's what history has shown has been absent, is a harmony between the two. And here again is one of the reasons I believe Ryle says it's so very difficult, because sin messes up everything. Can you walk with peace with God? Yes. Does sin destroy that and mess it up? No, it does. Can you have a happy marriage and feel embraced and accepted and loved and growing in that marriage? Oh, yes. But does sin mess that up? Of course it does. Between church government and civil government, can they walk together in peace? It's possible. Does sin mess that up? Oh, it does. That's why it's such a perpetuated problem and issue that continues on. And yet still Christ's words, are they not helpful to us? We're not saying all the knots are untied. We're not saying the problem is solved, but we sure are given guidelines and instruction that are helpful as we approach it. One commentator says, we obey the government as long as we can, and we worship God as long as we live. 
Peter showed us that when it comes down to a true contradiction between what men say and what God says, you go with God. But let that not be our first approach. Let us first seek the harmony. And if it comes to a true contradiction, we must obey our God. I find this is a huge answer. It's not just yes or no, pay taxes. Christ has covered an entire spectrum of relationship and approaches and honoring God in it. And I believe that this thought doesn't fully answer it because the problem is bigger than perhaps we can handle. But it has been helpful through the ages. I believe it's even been helpful through COVID as we have wrestled with this very aspect. So there's the the taxes and Christ's answer. We saw the questioners, the intent, the question itself, and Jesus' answer. I hope you see the glory of Christ. I hope you are, you know, in a horrible topic like taxes, you can see how Christ brings guidance and light and directs us rightly in it. His answer is much bigger than the question. And how wonderful to know that he is our teacher. He directs us forward. Let's move forward into the second area of death and the resurrection. Because the questions to dishonor Jesus, they're not over yet. Let us read verses 18 through 27. And the Sadducees came to him, who say there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up the offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and then he died and left no offspring. The second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. So again, an expansive answer. You didn't just name one of the husbands in this case. But let's look at verses 18 through 27, and let's look at the questioners again. Point one, under death and resurrection. These are the Sadducees. These are those who were probably hardest hit by Jesus cleansing the temple. They were wealthy. They were aristocratic, largely supplying uh, elements, persons into the priesthood. They believe there is no resurrection, and reports of their day and age say they lived like it as well. If you remove judgment, then you can live your life how you see fit because it's all, you live like you want and you die like you want if there is no resurrection. And so theologically, they are unfaithful. This position is just one of them while at the same time looking scriptural and spiritual. They're also 
I would call them, you've heard of uh, King James only? They're even tighter than that. These are Pentateuch only. The first five books, baby, that's it. That's what we take as our authoritative rule. And you'll find that they pull their example from the first five books. Christ gives, the, again, his answer from the first five books. And they really pride themselves on being the five book people. We are experts. This is our territory. We have home team advantage because we believe these five books of the Bible. And we believe we're even superior to the, the other members of temple leadership because they think that there's more than just these five. So they're, they're it's very much stuck on that. But this is who they are, the Sadducees, the wealthy. And so they are looking uh, for uh, the accumulation of wealth. When Christ cleansed the temple, I don't think they were disappointed that there was mayhem, that there was chaos, that Gentiles were pushed out of the outer court. I think in their mind they saw coins on the pavement. And I think it drove them nuts. Those are the people we're talking about. The intent, secondly, under death and resurrection, they are here to ridicule Jesus. They are here to dishonor Jesus. To have him answer and to find him in a theological fault. If you notice, these questions are political, they are theological, they are practical. And they're trying to hit him at every corner. But if we can just silence Jesus, our intent will be fulfilled. And as a side benefit, if we can get Jesus confused about the resurrection, we might end this long-going debate we have with the Pharisees who think there is a resurrection. You remember down the road, several years later, Paul expressly broke up their united fight against him by bringing up the fact of the resurrection. But that is their intent. Let's take a look at their question, verses 18 through 23. They pretended a scriptural basis. This sounds good, doesn't it? Moses. Okay, you bring in Moses, you're bringing in the big guns. You're bringing, they're bringing in Deuteronomy 25. We get our whole idea of kinsman redeemer. Those principles arrive out of this passage of Levirate marriage where a, to keep inheritance aligned with a family to the promise of God in the promised land. It was really the perpetuation of the blessing of God being continued. And so they take that passage and they formulate it. You know, it's interesting. They don't formulate it to a picture of, this is a physical picture of an eternal reality. They're just saying this is a physical picture that ends here on earth. So they take that picture and in fact, we actually see it worked out in the beautiful story of Ruth. Ruth chapter 2, Boaz is the kinsman redeemer. And he even says, there's one closer than I, but if, if that one will not do it, I will take it up. And you have this beautiful story, and they take all this glorious truth of God, and they use it to dishonor and ridicule Jesus. You know, to ridicule Jesus... They really didn't, as some theologians say, they didn't really need more than two husbands to present this as a principled question. But they go on and on with seven, right? I'm, I'm assuming this is fictitious. This is presumed. Most, most commentators would. Some give a little room to think that this might have been an actual story. Probably even speaks worse of the Sadducees if it was among their numbers. But they only needed two to actually pose the question. 
but they use seven. And so they not only use ridicule, but they're using an extended hypothetical situation in their question against Jesus. So they pretended a scriptural basis. They have this extended hypothetical, which is all geared to drive Jesus to a particular answer in their question. Again, neither of these questions are honest because they're not really seeking truth. They got the end in mind. How by question form do we get Jesus to fulfill our expectations? Let's look, brethren, at Jesus' answer. He exposes, he confronts them again, just like he confronted the Pharisees with their hypocrisy. He exposes them and confronts them with their great problems as well, their deficiency. And he presents a big picture of life after death, which we can rejoice in. And he even gives a solid, not a shaky, he gives a solid foundation scripturally for it. So he tells them, verse 24, why they are wrong. Because you do not know the scriptures. Okay, that's going to sting. This is going to leave a mark. They pride themselves on these first five books. And to tell them they do not know the scriptures, that's, that's going to rankle all, every nerve in their body. They're the experts. And yet here is where the answers are in the scriptures. And a reason they are wrong, again, there's two reasons. The scriptures they are ignorant of and the power of God they do not know. You know, even in the five books, we have tremendous examples of the power of God. Creation, on you go the first couple chapters, you're already talking creation. We are talking being freed from Egypt. We're talking holding back the Red Sea. We're talking the mightiness of God to come against all the evil intent of men with the flood and then preparing a way through that. I mean, there's just God, even Abraham himself, particularly with resurrection. He believed even if he had killed his son Isaac as the Lord had seemingly designed for him, that God would raise him up. So even Abraham himself is someone who would not omit, omit the idea of resurrection. So they are wrong on two counts. They do not know the scriptures. They do not know the power of God. Verse 25, in this chapter in Mark 12, 25, he says, for when they rise, here we have the words from Christ, the reality of resurrection. For when they rise, believers are living. And then he begins to tell them, and I love it when Jesus does this, he tells them about that future life. If you remember in John 14, Christ says he's going to die, they are downcast, and he begins to tell them what heaven is like to get them through. It's my Father's house. There are many rooms are prepared for you. I will come and get you, that where I am, you may also be. He's giving him a very full picture. And here he gives a picture again. He says, they will be like the angels. In a land where there is no death, there is not either a need for procreation. And there will be not, they won't be marriage as we see marriage today. We will all be the marriage bride with Christ. But be like the angels, Christ tells us. There will be no death. There will be unique identities. Angels were known personally and by their character. They were unique. One commentator uses a great phrase. When we rise, we will experience perfect spiritual relationships. 
Imagine every relationship perfect, wonderful, helpful, eternal, without pain, without death. A glorious, perfect spiritual relationship. And then regarding the resurrection, he says, have you read Moses? You experts of the first five books, do you remember the burning bush? Exodus 3. These are probably the very things they taught their children, right? God spoke. And he didn't say, I was. He said, I am the God of Abraham. Furthermore, this language used is covenant language. I am the God of Abraham. I am the God of Jacob. And it's a covenant that God says is still in force. And so Christ brings us to the grand conclusion that he is God of the living and not God of the dead. And he ends with just two words. Commentators have made interesting observations on this. But it pretty much ends with, you blunder. Two words, very simple. You err in this because you do not know the power of the scriptures. You know the power of God or the scriptures. So that's our section on on death. Again, Christ giving a very full answer, more than just whose wife will she be, but on the covenant of God, the life of God, life after death, the reasons for failure. You know, their failure, knowing their failure, is that not instructive to our own souls? Let's, Let's again... Endeavor after knowing the scriptures. Let's again endeavor after knowing the power of God and seeing it on those pages. Some lessons as we go. Again, Christ was tested and proved that he has greater wisdom, that he speaks the truth, even when it is beyond us, that he is worthy of our trust and admiration. You know, there's a wonderful thing that I get to do as a pastor. When visitors come and they want to partake the Lord's table, once in a while someone will come to me and say, I'd like to partake of the table, and I get to ask him questions. And the first question is my favorite, because I love to hear their response. I usually say, if you were to die today and go before God's judgment throne, and he were to say to you, why should I let you into my holy kingdom? And I love hearing the answers to that. Most of the time, it's because of Christ. Sometimes that answer almost feels a little too rote because of Jesus. And so sometimes I'll throw another little question in there. They'll say, because Jesus died for me and I trust him. And I'll say, is that all? And that kind of gets us out of our normal routine. You can see him thinking. And some will say, well, very rarely, me 20% of the time, some will say, well, okay, I, I try to go to church, and I try to be good, and I, you know, I try to know the Ten Commandments. And of those people, some of them will even catch themselves. And this is the best part. They'll say, no, 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 it's Christ and his merit alone. I, you, know, they, you can see them backpedaling, and they're very, they're, it's just, again, the light shines fresh. It's not that they weren't saved. It's just that the, you know, we get so busy that sometimes we get distracted and they're remembering again a fresh way. And, and I love that. And 
when we ourselves come to heaven, you know our situation is actually better than us giving our answer? I mean, I picture myself face down. It's a fearful thing to come into the presence of the Lord. We had the psalm read today. Let the world tremble before him. We're going to be trembling before him. And if you were to say, why should I let you in my holy kingdom? I don't even think I could find the words. And what would my argument even be? But here's the glory that is beyond simply what is a right answer. It's when Christ stands up and says, I will give an account for him. It's not my little brain or my weak strength to hang on to him that is going to answer a holy God in that day. It's Christ standing up before me, the one who has interceded for me all these years, interceded for you all these years. And he will say, I will give an account for him. That's glorious. That is beyond just an answer. That is a surety standing in to save your soul, to show his love, the smile of God upon you, the welcome of heaven before you. A new life with perfect spiritual relationships is about to embark because Christ stands up before you and gives an account of you. Your heart just goes out to a savior. So wonderful is this. Now I'll get to my points. (laughs) First lesson learned, a question is often more than a question. As we interact with the world, as we interact with ourselves, a question is often more than a question. Because people come from all different points on the map, the reasons they ask questions are all over the map as well. I thought today's Bolton quote was very appropriate. I don't know if they knew my my topic matter. People hate the truth for the sake of whatever it is that they love more than the truth. They love truth when it shines warmly on them, and they hate it when it rebukes them. That's from Augustine. And so a question is often more than a question. There's something behind it. There's something of the questioner in the question. And how people ask you questions is very telling, isn't it? May the Lord give us a mindfulness that when questions are posed to us, that we are alerted to flattery like the Pharisees. Or we are alerted to an extended hypothetical meant to steer you to a certain end. Question is often more than a question. And yes, love does hope all things. But love is not naive and love is not undiscerning either. So when someone asks us a question, we hope for the best, but we need to have our detectors up. How are they asking this? What's in the question? Where is this person coming from? What about the people that never heard the gospel? We will let God take care of that. But did you know you do know the gospel and you do need to respond to it? The, the part of that question is evasion. If I can get the spotlight off of me, I'm going to feel better. We can be loving to show the spotlight is on you. You have heard. You have to respond. It has consequences. Is the question honest? I remember at one time I would get what I would now call a question flood. Have you ever had a question flood? Someone has purpose. They don't like Christianity. They don't like the gospel. 
well, I can't be a Christian because I can't believe the earth was created like that, and I can't believe that those kind of rules are still accurate today, and I can't believe that, you know, marriage is really all that people say it's supposed to be. And, you know, and so they line up like four questions, and there's no time to even answer. I would call that a question flood. And, uh, and I, young guy, I sat catty-corner in engineering land with a uh, professor of philosophy at Cypress College. He mopped the floor with me regularly. This is the one time I won, that's why you're hearing about it. Um, and he gave me like six questions in a row. And I asked him, are those honest questions? You know, that changed everything. That, I, I, I don't know, I think the, the Holy Spirit gave it to me. I, didn't, I wasn't thinking, how can I change this? He goes, what do you mean? I go, well, you're rattling off this, all these questions, but you're not waiting for any kind of answer. Do you want an answer? Or do you want to just give questions? And he said, okay. And so he said, well, answer one of them. And happily for me, I got to pick this one out of six that I most wanted to answer of his questions. And it was wonderful. But we have to be, kind of be detecting how is a question asked? Who is asking that question? Uh, because it, it folds into our answer. Ryle says formalism was on one side and infidelity was on the other. These are the two enemies for whose attacks we must always be prepared. We must be on our guard against unfairness and dishonesty in argument. Secondly, lesson learned, Christ knows and confronts the heart. Even the enemies of Christ. He shows them mercy and grace, but he shows them you're a hypocrite here. You lack knowledge of the scripture and you don't know the power of God. However much people hide, Jesus is able to look around the corner into their heart. And that's what he does for us. And when he does that for us as sheep, he does it for our good. We should be open to the rebukes of Christ should they come our way. Because he designs it all for good. But he even shows grace to the unbelieving as he confronts them. He is the perfect physician for our diagnosis and recovery because he sees the heart. He is the right one to judge in the final day. He's the best physician that we could ever entrust our soul to. This is Christ who knows and confronts the heart. Thirdly, there are many religious errors that can be traced to ignorance of the Bible. How many times have you heard someone say, well, the Bible's full of contradictions? And I like to say, well, show me one. Well, I don't read the Bible. Okay, you don't believe it, but you won't touch it. I remember even once someone saying, well, I haven't, you know, I read it, but I was five. And I said, okay, so your five-year-old mind, now that you're 35, your five-year-old mind is governing what you think about the scripture. You don't have a valid basis, but religious errors can be traced to ignorance of the Bible. And therefore, we study it, we plan to study it, we rejoice in it, we sing it. Truest religion is where the Bible is most studied. The most godly people study their Bible. The most godly families read their Bibles. The most godly and upright church is one that is preaching the word of God. We see that many religious errors can be traced to ignorance of the Bible. And so let us re, re if we need to, let's retool, let's re-energize ourselves, let's build a new plan to go and put the word into our, our hearts that we would not sin against him. 
the Bible frames our understanding. And in this passage, how wonderful. The Bible frames our understanding of this life and the life after this life. Lastly, Christ's answers are full and trustworthy. See here how Christ answers more than the question. He gives divine instruction. He gives last. It's like he's, someone asked him for a quarter and he just dumps out this wonderful treasure chest of gold and gems and rubies and teaching and principles that will save you heartache and those things that will make you strong as a Christian. You end up with this mound of wealth spiritually. I asked for this and look, I got all this. This is the effect of Christ whose answers are full and trustworthy. He answers more than the question and rightly, even the unbelievers marveled at his answers as they walked away. He was gracious to answer them despite provocation. He is an exceeding comfort when we are rooted in him because he has supreme wisdom and a glorious grace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for a Savior like the Lord Jesus Christ. Tested, tried, even hated, and yet he shines evermore. He is more endeared to us than ever before. We cherish his answers. We see the wisdom of his instruction. Please, by your Spirit, seal these to our heart. Remove the parts that are simply our perceptions and bring us to that place where we see Christ more clearly. We obey him more freely. We love him more deeply because he is a great savior for sinners. We thank you for him and ask these things in his name alone.